us. Welcome, everybody, uh, to season two of Magic Camp. You may uh, have realized that we are coming in with a banger, which is different than, than uh, our previous song. So thank you so much to Trevor Welch for our new um, introduction music. Trevor's a super talented musician based in Los Angeles, California. Um, you can find his music at trevor.money Trevor uh, on the internet or Trevor Welch on Twitter. All one word. That's W-E-L-C-H. Trevor is doing all sorts of cool stuff. Anyway, welcome. How you doing, Ben? Uh, good. Good. Yeah. Thanks, Trevor. It's, your music rocks. Yeah. My head just, is just really going along going to the back beat. And forth. Which I for had, me is how I know. It's mm-hmm. how I know. I had one hand in the air um, <laughs> yeah. and the other on an imaginary headphone like a DJ. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and uh, thanks for letting us access your music. So, and whenever you hear something awesome, it's, it's going to be from Trevor. It's going to be from Trevor. So thanks. Special thanks to Trevor. We really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, welcome back to Magic Camp. If it's been a minute for for you or for uh, it's been a minute for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ben, what's new? <clears throat> what's new? What's new? Uh, not much. We're hanging out in my studio, as I like to call it. Right. We're in our second studio. Yeah, true. Well, I meant more of the my painting studio, uh-huh. where I do my great paintings. Mm-hmm. Don't sell yourself short. Um, there are some pretty cool paintings here. I call this one um, Orange Sherbet Surprise. <laughs> it's very good. It does look like a piece of sherbet It is ice very cream. orange. It looks delicious. And as I've keyed you into, uh, that's the, 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 the vivacity of the orange comes from a glazing effect rather than a tinting effect. Mm. But I don't need to tell you that, you know. Um, well, it sounds like you've been doing some painting. Uh, yeah, not... I mean, I'm, I am back into it a little more after drawing... Drawings have been really good, just quick, quick drawing stuff and pastels, and then kind of working up my courage back to do some more painting, and that's been cool, so I'm exploring some new stuff, um, yeah, but mostly this is the room where I, uh, the dungeon where I come during the working hours to have my clinically diagnosed work depression, mm-hmm. where my head... Um, becomes weightless and smacks against my table, and I can't do any work is the important thing. And I have a note from the doctor, and I give it to my boss whenever <clears throat> I can't do any work. Um, but no, uh, yeah, so that has been the kind of the gist of things, just working at a newest job, trying to still find time for art, trying to figure out uh, what to make of doing art, and if there's... Uh, any hope in it and all that the 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 struggles of a of a, an unrealized artist mm. well we have a lot of uh kind of relatable topics or content to to go along with the feeling of being yeah. smothered by society yes you heard that right folks ben is unhappy at his job after three weeks <laughs> <laughs> his new job um no i'm just kidding it I, sucks uh what work sucks we know that here at magic camp that's why we that's why we're here yeah. because we're trying to figure out how to destroy work work entirely. sucks i know mm-hmm. she left me roses by the stairs that was the first inclination that i had that work would suck one day yeah I, I, you know for all i knew it was a it was a good time yeah i got it even though we had to overwrite the lyrics at our dances school sucks oh yeah <laughs> Everyone's right screaming that well school doesn't suck school doesn't suck but 
it is preparation for the workforce at the end yeah, of the day. I guess it does suck, but being a kid is pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. If only we knew. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, well. I, anyways, anyways, yeah. So, I, I doing that, and we we've and then some hanging out and some fun stuff too on the side. It being in summer and all, enjoying lots of rain. Like feel feel we are living our best Colorado lives right now because it's not. It's not a drought like it was last. Maybe I don't know. It doesn't. Oh, we feel don't like know. A we still like could very. We yeah. very well could get a drought at this point. Some at some point in the summer. But it's like yeah, having some of the benefits of Colorado weather without feeling like the apocalypse is coming, which is how I felt last summer. However, it did kind of feel like that a couple weeks ago, and we don't need to get yeah. into uh, all the particular weather patterns. But a couple weeks ago, we so happened to be in a very unique landscape, not Colorado, but. New Mexico. New Mexico. Um, everybody's favorite Nuevo. state. Nuevo. Nuevo. Is that right? What's what's new? Yeah, that's right. Nuevo, I think, Mexico. I think that's correct. Um, so Ben's been miserable. Um, I've been having a pretty nice summer so far. I'm about at a little over the halfway point, which is a, a bit frightening. And I'm trying not to think about it too much. But um, yeah, we're kind of an opposite opposite tracks right now. I, I can't. I don't. I have too much free time, mm. and and no no work whatsoever. So, so that's the problem with these. You can't fire a bad teacher. That's the problem with these unions, teachers' unions, and public schools, and tenure, and all, all of that. And you can't fire a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have any response to that. He's not wrong. Just the man on the street opinion, and that's why I do it. Something I so heard you, from so I could be untouchable. Something from my <laughs> something I heard from. A guy who um, inflated a bouncy castle at like that the guy who pulled up with his truck and then blew up the bouncy castle because we were this was a couple years ago and we were doing like a he's not even a carny he's like lower than a carny yeah this was a picnic for uh, whatever amendment that didn't pass uh, years ago to raise to introduce a progressive tax and raise taxes on higher incomes and fund schools. And said some version of that to this guy who was blowing up the inflatable thing. Why? Why? First of all, why were you saying this to this guy? Because he's like, "What is this all about?" Oh, oh, it was a, it was an it was event. Like a, it was like, oh, a okay. I thought it was a fundraiser. I thought it was your the, your son's birthday party that no, you were telling. No. Okay, it was an awareness raising thing. Okay, and uh, yeah, then he gave us that spiel about not being able to fire bad teachers. Oh my god. Like oh, well, I want to give him the benefit old, of the doubt. But he had a big truck. So he knows, you know, about a hard day's work. Yep. You know? Which is something I can't relate to. hmm So you may be wondering what this episode is about. Uh, I hinted at it before, and it's probably in the description. But here at Magic Camp, we have a great affinity for uh, landscapes, for one. Ben being a landscape painter, us being drawn to landscape artists, Etc. Etc. But especially one particular unique landscape, which is the desert. Um, Ooh, if we could cut in right then. Yeah, uh, Ben especially loves Clint Eastwood and his politics. <laughs> yep. um, good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, what's the name of that one? Uh, Grant Reno, <laughs> Richard Jewell. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we like the desert, and we took a little trip here. I took a, a trip uh, a couple weeks ago with no intention of 
mining any sort of uh, content out of the out of the ordeal, but was nonetheless inspired and reminded of certain um, fixations and fascinations that I have with certain artists who are, are associated with desert um, sort of landscapes, c- terrain and climate, um, and also kind of the spirituality of the desert. And those two things kind of go hand in hand. So, you know, loaded up the old Subaru, drove down to Taos, New Mexico by myself, and uh, Ben met up with me a little bit later, but was instantly uh, hashtag humbled by the desert, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which seemed to kind of be a recurring theme there, that every day there were at least two or three different things that, you know, were uncomfortable and mm-hmm. made me feel lonely, uh, a little bit scared, frightened to the point that I don't typically experience in my, in my very modern, very comfortable urban life. Um, so it got us thinking about a lot of different stuff. It got me thinking about, um, why the desert is a recurring, uh, sort of landscape for some of the most intense and beautiful, uh, art and theology and eh, theology. I don't even like that word. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take that word back. Decolonize. I'm going to decolonize the word theology. Actually, I'm kind of serious about that with something I'm going to say later. Okay. But, um, so what were some highlights? What did we do? What did we do in New Mexico that was of interest to you, Ben? Um, yeah, I mean, where we were staying and where we went was cool. It really felt like a part of the country I'd never seen before, like a different country. Felt like it could have been in a different country. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of like Spanish and native influence. So we've been to Arizona a lot, but it's not the same as that. That's different. It is different. There's um, a lot of cool native influence in in Arizona, but it is a, it is completely kind of overwhelmed by um uh let's say cheesecake factory influence (laughs) all the old people (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah for sure it's totally unique and um yeah we stayed in the trailer with a pig under the porch Mm -hmm. and you know this is a place you could go to get to disappear and you really could you really could and it felt like the people you see around there are doing exactly that um right one of those places where you're reminded of how humongous our country actually is, mm-hmm. how you, how you could, you could get away with pretty much anything yeah. if you went to certain corners of New Mexico. <clears throat> uh, see Zorro Ranch, uh, Wikipedia that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's very old. We didn't go to the Taos Pueblo, but it's, mm-hmm. um, the oldest continuously inhabited place is it in America or North America? I don't. I'm not sure, but it's it's like a thousand <laughs> years old. Has had people living there. Probably just uh, America. So, um, very very cool. And yeah, there. As we'll talk about, there's a huge art heritage there that we got to see a little bit of. Um, and also, I don't know. I mean, I'd been to Santa Fe before. This had an even smaller. And somewhat more depressed feeling. Yep. Just in that, the t- even what what remains of the tourism there is like not exactly thriving. I right. don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about no, that. No, you're but. you're right. I, I think the second night that I was there, I walked two blocks from where we were, and it was a, a little bit better. You mm-hmm. know, there was more open than I realized. Um, as if that's the sign of a a thriving industry. But uh, but yeah, it was it was a place where you could be kind of um reminded of of a lot of different things that you perhaps take for granted 
of the diversity of this country, of the complexity of it, um, of the ways that people live in, in, and by, by that, I mean the, the various ways that people can live. Um, and, um, so we saw some good art. There's a, there's a deep tradition of New Mexico, of art in New Mexico, um, that of course predates the, uh, uh, Ivy League educated painters who came there in the early 20th century to, you know, kind of reinterpret abstract expressionism with the, uh, you know, New Mexico landscape as their backdrop to do so. That's Mm an oversimplifying way of explaining it. Um, But they really did. There was a real scene there. Which yeah. is what we're we're For learning real. from going to two different museums. Um, the first one being in Taos, called the Hardwood Museum. What was that? Har- just hard Harwood. Harwood. I think it was just yeah. Harwood, not right. Hardwood. Yeah. Um, where there was a really uh, even a small collection, but a super super impressive um, kind of range of art that varied from the kind of minimalist landscape abstract expressionist uh, sort of genre onto stuff that I had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, super modern, super interesting uh, stuff. And, you know, I think most people probably would say, oh, yeah, I know George O'Keefe. I know all about that, which was pretty much all I knew, too. And she's cool. She's she's rad and all that. But she's really the only person who anybody probably knows about and – yeah. That that actually is probably pretty criminal for that to be the only representation. She's of, a criminal. She is a criminal. She is a criminal. Yeah, it's we we figured yeah. we and may have some ties to a, a little guy named Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> um, also had a ranch. Right. You tell me. You fill in the gaps. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. No, she rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely outside of. Ansel Adams, and not that I even know anything about him or would say he's mainstream. Um, he's probably the only, like, big name. Right. And there are a couple um, kind of key groups that we discovered uh, kind of who were working at the time. And this, again, this timeline is anywhere from probably, like, 1930 on to the 60s or, or later than that. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of that period that we're continuing to come back to, you know, post post. World War II or kind of almost post-World War II um, into mid- mid-century. Um, one group called the pa- Transcendental Painting Group. Um, ben, do you have any informa- information on these guys? Um, yeah. Actually, I'll read this little blurb, not to cu- step on your toes here, about a few of the groups because this is... Yeah. We also visited the American Museum of Western Art today in Denver um, which is its own thing, but there was a lot of overlap, and they have some of the art from this from this region. Um, and this is this is their description of that. Um, artworks by the Tau Society of Artists, art from the Golden Age of Illustration, early modern artists, and artists that worked in Santa Fe and Taos, New Mexico. The collection includes several paintings by each of the founding members of the Tau Society of Arts. So that was earliest, I think. I mean, in terms of the like European and uh, like expansionist painters, including Ernest Blumenshine, whose um, painting I was glued to today and is one of my absolute favorites, um, who's sort of like a... Ben, Ben's face was literally stuck to the stuff to the painting. I said, Ben, don't touch the paintings with your yeah. face. Uh, Gust is sticking his face to a painting. <laughs> 
Um, but he's kind of like an Edgar Payne style, like came out with the, you can, you can let Peach in. Right. Moved West with the Frontier sort of, or, or Edgar, after. Edgar Payne, you say, or Bloom and Shine? I'm comparing Bloom and Shine to Edgar Payne, like you can close the door now. Um, like sort of following the expansion of the frontier, obviously like not, not at the, the cutting edge, but, um, going on the railway West and sort of painting the American West and making, uh, making beautiful paintings that would draw people out. Um, but anyways, uh, many of the artists trained in Europe, but were drawn to Northern New Mexico by the, promise of expansive skies and clear vibrant light first house then santa fe became flourishing art communities that attracted many artists interested in the southwest southwest cultural diversity as well as its beautiful surroundings ernest blumenshine was one of the most influential members of the taos society of artists um the sangre de cristo mountains uh which is where we were and is the painting i was talking about is a powerful example of the Harmonization of natural man-made elements in a single composition. Uh, I don't think I had anything else in here about the Transcendental Painting Group, but we did see several of their paintings um, at the Harwood. And, yeah, they were... So they came, like, slightly before World War One. They were, I think, a pretty short-lived group, like, late 30s to early 40s. And did I say World War One Shortly before World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um and they kind of broke up, like, with the onset of World War II, but were trying to uh, translate European abstract art um, and non-objective art, in some cases, uh, into an American style, uh, somewhat opposed to, like, the East Coast, what was going on in the East Coast, like, and to establish uh, an alternative or... Right. An alternative community, really, to what was happening in New York. I think it's probably a good time to say that Magic Camp officially considers itself a Western podcast, <laughs> officially. Yeah. We're anti-East, Eastern Coast elites, um, anti-European. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it is really interesting to to, when you look at this art and you see it in that context and that they were consciously um, working within or, or working alongside those... Uh, kind of aesthetic movements, but we're more consciously attempting to render the American landscape, mm-hmm. um, the West in particular, in a way that, you know, the abstract expressionists who we probably know, the Jackson Pollocks and the um, whoever else guys. Um, <laughs> those uh, guys. You those know guys, the guys. We're, we're maybe not even considering at all geographical forms. Um, I could be wrong about that, um, but it seems to me that the these these artists were much more concerned with external um, external forms or not even forms, but landscapes in a way that is really interesting because we don't typically think of abstract expressionism or minimalism or any sort of modern uh, painting movement as something that's concerned with landscape. We think of those as separate, mm-hmm. you know, as landscape as representational mm-hmm. and abstraction, anything modern, um, as intellectual and, and, uh, mental, right. Yeah. Psychological in a way. And I have a little bit more from their, um, manifesto, not their manifesto statement of purpose, 1938. 
The word transcendental has been chosen as a name for the group because it is it best expresses the aims, which are to carry painting beyond the appearance of the physical world through new concepts of space. Okay, that it rings familiar. Light and design upon planes that are termed idealistic and spiritual. The work of the group does not concern itself with political, economic, or materialistic problems. Thank That's God. interesting. Yeah, seriously. Can, can we keep politics out of this? <laughs> For a minute. I'm not political. political. <laughs> that is important to, to note about them though, that they that that the um there was an impulse to to move away from from the political, intellectual, ideological frameworks that were kind of forming or taking shape or entrenched at that time. Yeah, for sure. And um I mean it's interesting that they're like uh ideologically they're trying to uh transcend material forms in the concrete um but the presence of like actual actual places and actual people and actual culture is totally unmistakable in their work in a way right. that it's definitely not with like the east coast mm-hmm. um east coast mofos because yeah which feel a lot more like timeless and placeless mm-hmm. whereas there's such a distinct flavor to these new mexico artists um where you can feel like the, the environment stamped all over the work even if it is completely non-objective which some of them were mm-hmm. um even just in the color palette um yes right. of a lot of that stuff you feel you feel the um those orange orange rock formations and the all that different stuff that you experience there, which there's so truly so many different landscapes down there. Um, and I want to kind of move in the direction of trying to translate or express, and it is difficult to express what is so interesting or what, why, um, a desert is worth talking about, why it's something that is a fixture in mysticism, in mystical theology, and maybe the best, I don't really have any great illustrations because it all kind of blurs together for me with my experience there. But the first thing I did was go for a bike ride by myself. I forgot my helmet. So I didn't have a helmet on, which, you know, this, if we're holding to che- the Chekhov's gun principle, the better conclusion of the story would be that I fell off and hit my head. <laughs> I didn't. But um, I was immediately taken by how rough and unforgiving the landscape was. Mm-hmm. Colorado's not too far away, but there's there's a, a lot more forgiving, even just in the, the how soft the ground is. The ground is a little bit softer. There's more green. There's more, the, the edges aren't as hard. There are a lot less prickly things. Um, that when you look out at a New Mexico landscape or when you're in it or when you're thirsty, you forgot to put on sunscreen and chapstick, and you ran out of water. All these things happened to me within my first two hours of being in New Mexico. The landscape feels vacant, barren, and sinister, <laughs> right? That it's, that it is, that there's an antagonistic force and, and shows you that, right? Mm-hmm. You can feel, it's scary. It's existentially frightening. Mm-hmm. And that the wind starts, you know, Ben had a crazy dream where he thought a guy was breaking into our trailer. <laughs> he came running into our 
Airbnb, uh, my Airbnb bedroom, afraid that a guy was breaking into the trailer. Yeah, and I wasn't scared, or I wasn't scared. <laughs> he wasn't I was, scared, but I was he did. Little, I was scared his... for you. I was scared for you. <laughs> <laughs> right, sure, but th- there's there's something to that. There's something frightening, right, about this. Not just you know, oh, anything can happen, but and it could be the fact that we're going through a heat wave, that the Earth, the environment, these things are unforgiving. Mm-hmm. It, it provokes the feeling that the earth does not care about you. It will, it yeah. will smother, it will kill you. Fundamentally in, in it. ambivalent to the paper thin layer of life on top of all the rocks. hundred percent. Yeah. That was a very poetic way of putting it. And yet, and this is the hardest thing to articulate. This is the paradox of the desert. That paper thin layer confront it to be confronted by it or to submit oneself to it, to submit one's powerlessness in the desert is to embrace the abundance Mm. of the world. So in one instant, you can encounter the utter ambivalence and uncaring, sinister nature of the world or of God or of the universe Mm-hmm. And in the other, it's absolute opposite, which is its abundance and its care mm-hmm. for every living thing that live, that exists upon it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a place where you can feel the extremes of, and that's, of being where, where life happens in their impossible uh, synthesis. Creation points towards God is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, just kidding. Um Say say that one more time. Sorry. I cut you off. That in a place like New Mexico, you you are very close to the extremes of yeah. absolute barrenness and abundance. And only by dealing with those two opposites can you come to a, an actual yes. synthesis of the of these impossible things that would be impossible to reconcile. That confrontation provokes a uh, let's say a surrender of logic and a surrender of intellect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That it escapes intellectual framework. One might say it escapes ideology, politics, economy. Perhaps the logos. It escapes the logos. Indeed. <laughs> Apologize for how pretentious I'm being right now. I'm just trying to explain it's all, it's myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's it's pretty powerful, and I was tr- pretty earnestly trying to to reckon this reckon with this for the last couple weeks, and found some help in the form of a couple different sources. Um, do you have anything more you want to get into about these painters? I think there's just more. I, I just don't think they get enough credit. To be completely honest. Yeah, I mean, and it's pretty incredible. What I was reading, like the a lot of them were totally neglected until you had some like revivalist collectors bring them back into some sort of appreciation. So, like what we saw, or or I think what stuck out the most to us, like there's there's so many layers of history there because you have like the native art, 
And then you have Spanish influenced art and like all the religious stuff, which is extremely Super interesting, interesting and cool. Yeah. Um, and then you have like sort of the first um, wave of Americans or Europeans coming in, like Easter or European trained artists. And then you have a wave of modern artists coming. So that would be like uh, the Transcendental Painting Group. And then, um, yeah, the, the Taos Moderns who right. we saw a bunch of, which was very cool. Um, so, yeah, there's so many layers. I mean, I think in this case, because we've been talking about, like, the the Paris modernists and the Paris avant-garde and the turn of the 20th century, it was most interesting to see how that was taken up, like, how that made its way to New Mexico, which is pretty crazy. Sure. Um, but that's not to neglect any of the other amazing stuff. And it's not even like that was my favorite artwork there. Um, but it, it's also when you're there, you don't feel like you're at the center of anything, you know, like any sort of cultural movement. But yeah, um, that's huge. That that was kind of cool. And the fact that like it's harsh to be there in 2020. Imagine what it was like in the 30s, like mm-hmm. when re- all that was there was like the railroad to bring you in. Um, mm-hmm. so I yeah, mean, it would they, have been very extremely austere. Yeah. Yeah. No air conditioning. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. So he, uh, I'll just read this blurb in case like I didn't cover any of the basics, um, or I didn't cover them enough. Examples of American impressionism, including child, child Hassam's sun drenched response to the Western landscape, Sand Springs Butte, which, um, we saw and was really, really nice, uh, are displayed near Hungarian-born artist Emil Bistrom. So we saw a bunch of uh, Bistrom stuff. So he was one of the Transcendental Painting Group founders, um, and he was, you know, very interesting and, and cool. One of the first and foremost influential contemporary Western artists to settle and paint in the Southwest, Bistrom's style evolved from his interest in European modernism and is closely related to the abstract expressionist work of Helen Frankenthaler, whose Phoenix 1976 is one of the most abstract works in the collection. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to say there other than, uh, actually, let me read this. In stark contrast to the abstract abstract artists are the regionalists or American scene painters. In the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, many American artists who studied in Europe and experimented with modernism began to reject abstraction and return to a more realistic style and subject matter with which the public could identify. In the post-World War II era, these artists documented the America that they knew best, the nation of farms, small towns, and inspiring vistas. Um, Yeah, and it's it's also... So a lot of them, like, there was a lot of uh, people who had immigrated from Europe during general 20th century upheavals or just, I don't know, general immigration. Um, so you had like a lot of European influence coming into this. Um, and many of them coming in with like either the GI bill. So they're getting funded by the government to come study art. Kind of a cool idea, huh? Um, or the federal arts project. Um, so I just want to peg that as like this stuff wasn't born just out of, you know, determination and will of like some, some, uh, incredibly strong artists who were 
determined to strike away. Uh, they had to eat and they had to be funded somehow. And there was federal funding <laughs> right back then. Um, and thus might explain why Taos is feeling pretty dead these days. And it's kind of shocking that it even can still support its museums and galleries. Um, so boy, what a shame that would be to lose that. But uh, nobody is stepping in to do anything about it, I would say, at this point. Um, and then I guess I should say outside of federal funding, it would have to be, like like I mentioned, like the railroads or certain states or like real estate developers bringing in artists to paint the West and draw people out. So I guess that's an option, corporate funding. <laughs> oh, man, that's a little bleak when you put in those terms. Um, and actually, I just I just got off a call um, with uh, Bluebell. They want me to paint some orange sherbet. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. So you got a deal. It. Get that check, bro. <laughs> Get that check. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I that will depress me to think about you know what what it would take to sustain an artistic tradition or or a revival of of landscape painting or anything like that beyond just like a, a few a small handful of rich patrons um in the way that it the art world kind of limps on now um so let's maybe let's maybe shift gears and and go pre 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 modern um ancient, right, I'm gonna, ancient I'm, gonna hit the, say. I'm hitting the clutch and shaking that th- Thing around in the middle of the car. That's right. Clicking the clutch. What are you driving? Engaging, manual or an automatic? Engaging the um, the handlebar. <laughs> um, What's your favorite gear? Mine's got to be six. Easily two. <laughs> Going up a hill. Um, so there's a slight connection here to a group who came long before the Taos painters. Um, and this comes from one of our favorite, uh, this quote here comes from one of our favorite certified bald pimps, Thomas Merton, um, from his <sighs> book on the Desert Fathers. Yes. Uh, he wrote a ton of books. And, you know, it's it's amazing to just kind of pick something up, like, well, he'll write an introduction to something and just absolutely crush it. <laughs> just, like, kick, kick, kick ass all the way through. So... He's talking here about the Desert Fathers, which some of you may be familiar with, maybe not. Um, But I'll just read this quote here. So he says, It should seem to us much stranger than it does, this paradoxical flight from the world that attained its greatest dimensions when the world became officially Christian. These men seem to have thought, as a few modern thinkers have thought, that there really is no such thing as a Christian state. They seem to have doubted that Christianity and politics could ever be mixed to such an extent as to produce a fully Christian society. In other words, for them, the only Christian society was spiritual and extra mundane, the mystical body of Christ. Yeah, um, so that's Merton talking about the Desert Fathers, which is kind of a, a rough term to refer to a group of men and people women too, who um, left civilized society or, um, uh, you know, 
in evolving or, or forming societies in Egypt and uh, the Middle East and all the kind of early early Christian um, societies and went to the desert to either live as hermits or to establish some form of new community. There are the first monastic communities, but the pers- the people who he is kind of focusing on here are the ones who who essentially went to go be hermits or to go live in very, very small groups together. Um, in large part because it was the first time in history um, where Christianity was becoming a state organized state um, associated religion, right? Mm-hmm. That was when around the time when Rome became Christian. Right? Mm-hmm. When uh, I don't know, e- I don't know if Egypt ever was Christian, but um, parts of Egypt or Hippo, where Aug- Augustine was from, who we'll come back to later. Um, when you know we we're starting to create societies with different, uh, you know, people with different titles, uh, civic, political um, figures who are also happen to be bishops and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. So. There's a lot in common there with what we've already talked about with these these artists who kind of fled from the or fled from the um, you know from the very kind of rapidly entrenching um, kind of ideological centers of the world um, to go and do what they interpreted to be as um, you know practicing their religion in the way that it was intended to be practiced. So. You know, I, I have a few quotes here that I can pull from Merton, but Ben, have do you have any familiarity with these these folks with the Desert Fathers? Um, yeah, yeah, no. I think back in back in my Christian days, um, I was like into reading old stuff, and would go, um, you know, get free PDFs of like any, any sort of old. Christian writing and try to read it like right. I, like I was getting a lot out of it, mm. but invariably it's really hard to read. Yes, um, we'll come back to that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think it's one of those things where it's like sounds cool, but never really could get it. Especially if you're trying to put that into an orthodox framework, it's not going to work at all. Yep, absolutely. And you're just going to end up thinking, mm, you know, these guys like. They just sound mystical. They sound, they sound too Catholic or like more Catholic than Protestant. You know, mm-hmm. too uh, too With, apathetic. You know, I mean, for for my taste at that time, to uh, actually endure it. So right. all that to say, I didn't. I did not have the capacity to understand it at all. Absolutely. So apathetic is an important word. Um, we don't get too theological here, but those are all perfect, you know, kind of explanations for, or, or from a, from your point of view, from your perspective that do illustrate what is so unique about the Desert Fathers. So the thing I'm reading here is that they're, part of, uh, that they're considered kind of the first Christian mystics, mm-hmm. but you could also say that, that that's just because it was the first time that there was orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Orthodoxy was being established. So of course, anyone who is not orthodox is considered a mystic. So what they were doing was probably ha- had been done or or was being done. It's just that suddenly orthodoxy societies based on Christian doctrine and creeds were beginning to form. 
So I'm just going to read one, one of these legends, right? So there are, you could go and read the sayings of the Desert Fathers, which you're probably not going to get a lot out of. But what I think is good to illustrate this is the kind of um, stories that are told about, about these, these men. So here's one legend. This is from this is a description of what is considered or what who some considered the first desert father. And of course his name is Paul. His name is Paul of Thebes, the first hermit. Um so he's he's Egyptian. Um so here it goes. So Paul and his sister married uh wait, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Paul and his married sister Excuse uh-huh. me. Paul married his sister. That wouldn't be that odd. Uh, Paul and his married sister lost their parents. In order to obtain Paul's inheritance, his brother-in-law sought to betray him to his persecutors. Mm. Word to any future brothers-in-law listening to this podcast. Don't ever try to betray me. <laughs> According to Jerome's something-something, uh, Paul fled to the Theban desert as a young man during the... Pe- Persecution of Decius and Valerianus around A.D. 250, the year 250. Um, He lived in the mountains of this desert in a cave near a clear spring and a palm tree, the leaves of which provided him with clothing and the fruit of which provided him with his only source of food. Until he was 43, when a raven started bringing him half a loaf of bread daily. Wow. He would remain in that cave for the rest of his life, almost 100 years. Paul of Thebes is known to posterity because around the year 342, Anthony the Great, one of the other well-known desert fathers, was told in a dream about the older hermit's existence and went to find him. Jerome related that Anthony the Great and Paul met, Jerome was a historian of, of these people, that Anthony... When Anthony the Great and Paul met, when the letter was aged, excuse me, when Paul was aged 113, they conversed with each other for one day and one night. Um, they each invited the other to bless and break bread as a token of honor. Paul held one side, putting the other side into the hands of Father Anthony, and soon the bread broke through the middle and each took his part. When Anthony next visited him, Paul was dead. Anthony clothed him in a tunic, which was present from a present from Athanasius of Alexandria and buried him with the help of two lions digging the grave. Dang. Sounds like a Henry Rousseau painting. Yes, it does, right? So I wanted to read that because uh, also Father Anthony returned to his monastery, taking with him the robe that Paul wore, woven of palm leaf. He honored the robe so much that he only wore it twice a year on Easter and Pentecost. Mm. So we have a, you know, a bit of a buddy comedy here with, (laughs) (laughs) with Paul of Thebes and Anthony the Great, the two early desert fathers, one of whom lives alone for 50 years, um, living off of nothing but, you know, a tree and eventually ravens who start bringing him food. Um, and what, what I, you know, there's not a lot to draw from this, right? What, what do you draw from this other than, a certain um, kind of ascetic, poetic beauty, right, of this story retold with certain, you know, very kind of spare symbols and no theology whatsoever, (laughs) right? If you go and actually read the words of any of these Desert Fathers, 
they're they're very similar to this. It's it's they're not even parables. They're they're things along the lines of like, you know, this saint or this guy brought bought some bread for this guy. He ate it. He fell asleep and slept for forty years. Something like that. You know. Yeah. Stuff that is almost uh, unintelligible, right? To mm-hmm. to any modern reader, mm-hmm. right? And and. I don't know why that is. I, I don't have a thesis for why that is other than that it is, that it defies any sort of theological orthodoxy and exists almost entirely in a sort of um, material, tactile spirituality, mm-hmm. right? So that's in part why these Desert Fathers, if we ever go to read them, I don't recommend it. It's not going to blow your hair back. But... And that's because it, it has no, there are no touch points. There are no um, theological frameworks for which we can interpret them because they preceded theology, right? right? Yeah. I mean, of course, Paul had written and the, the, the Gospels had been written, mm-hmm. but those letters and those scattered documents had not been curated to, to mm-hmm. create, not only curated, but curated, interpreted, and... Uh, re sort yeah. of reinterpreted again to establish creeds and and doctrinal theology. Yeah. Totally. So it reminds me a little bit of what these, you know, what these painters were trying to do but not not completely because it, you know, they didn't they preceded all that. They did they what you know, they were um they they lived before any form of modern ideology was established. Um, and th- and that to me is very is quite beautiful, uh, and super super tight. <laughs> and it is super tight. It is right. If these men say little about God, it is because they know that when one has been somewhere close to his dwelling, silence makes more sense than a lot of words. Mm. Um. So. To me, it stands as a as a foil to any form of pre-modern theology that shapes the world we live in today. Pre-modern, pre-modern uh, Christian theology yeah, 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 yeah. that we are still paying the price for having been written. Yeah, but even I know what you mean the where the roots of it come from, but the way it's expressed to us today is ultimately modern. It's the ultimate expression of enlightenment type of thinking of, uh, truth statements put in logical frameworks mm-hmm. and systematic theologies mm-hmm. to be assented to or dissented from. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the, Connection with uh, with the desert mofos is um, that, yeah. I I think we didn't. There's not that much writing that that we've been able to like get into from these groups. Number one, because I don't know, they probably weren't writing as much as as other periods we've talked about, where they're writing letters all the time and journaling. Um, and they're just they're just less well covered parts of history, you know, mm-hmm. mo- mostly like no one's. There's no collection of Emil Bristrom's letters, like or diary, even though it may be out there, right? Because there's no, there's not an audience for that. But um, 
anyways, like, so we could get more into the ideas and we could go to some of the, the sources like the, of non-objective art or abstract expressionism. Um, we talked about like covering Kandinsky, Kandinsky a bit cause he was like one of the most theoretical founders of like modern art. Right. Yeah. Um, or yeah, vocally theoretical. Um, but you know, you have the basic idea that like these modern modern desert artists were trying to attain something that was um, pre-logical, like mm-hmm. getting to images and form and color as a means of truth, and ra- rather than um, yeah, rather than logical, verbalized, mathematical or whatever truth statements, um, just looking for another way to truth and to a connection to the real, um, and doing that... Like like, podcasting. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Um, Doing that, like, through explorations of form and color, but also, and this is where they, like, step beyond, the East Coast modern artists is, like, through a, a greater connection to nature and, as the way they saw it, greater connection to uh perhaps like more in tune civilizations um non-european civilizations and of course like there's many dissertations that could be written in a very academic tone of like cultural appropriation and the colonial mindset of all these uh europeans who came to appropriate the culture of native americans and um yeah to to turn it into their own deal. That's all fine. Like the problematic stuff is, is real. And like, there is a lot of like ground you could cover there in a dissertation, but I don't know, not, not for us to get into right now. Um, and just to let kind of like their perspective be heard, like they did see whatever, whatever cultures they were finding, uh, in New Mexico before they had been completely pushed out by Western expansion as something closer to the real and the absolute and something they had to get in touch with to speak back to uh, the modern world. Absolutely. Okay, I have this thing to read to you. This is a book review of a book called Art, Modernity, and Faith. And it seems like a good book. It seems like um, by a guy named George Patterson. Patterson. I, d- I don't know anything about him. Just from what I gleaned from this article, which is, you know, a conservative evangelical's take on the book. Um, it seems to be sort of like, you know, one of those guys trying to dance the line between art and faith mm-hmm. and per- perhaps even granting the supremacy to art or art as religion. How dare you? Like uh, a... Who's your guy, Christian? Christian Wyman. Christian Wyman. Mm-hmm. And I know you've seen plenty of this in the image world. Sure. So you could cr- probably critique the strengths mm. and weaknesses better, much better than this person. Mm. Um, but that seems to be where this one's coming from. I'm just, this is very short. So I'm going to try and give you, this is a review of that book, right? Okay. Okay. From an evangelical perspective. Because we're not done with them yet, folks, all right? Can they kick them We ain't done down? yet. Yeah. There's just more to be said. Just <laughs> when I thought I was done, they pull me back in. 
The conundrum which George Pattison presents and wrestles with throughout his fine book is that art is there, it is good, it draws you into its own meaning and language, but once in, but once inside it, inside it, someone needs to uh, copy edit this, but once inside it, its world is not easily retrieved in words. How can theology pretend to master it, let alone judge it? Yet how can theology honestly ignore it when so much meaning is evidently lodged there? Good questions. Uh huh. Beginning with Plato's suspicion of the non submissiveness of images, which I'm not familiar with, um, to work and finding eventual relief in Heidegger's acceptance of the autonomy of in images. Pattison takes us on a superb tour of art theology of all periods, surmising even the most demanding authors, such as Hegel and Ruskin, with great skill. Until finally he finds confirmed his sense that the passion of modern art are more authentically religious and more worth listening to than much re- religiosity in the church. Yeah, Sick. Definitely. Art, he concludes, has suffered too much from anti-iconic dualisms propagated by Augustine, ding, 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 and should now be embraced by a world-affirming affor- world carnal Christianity. Carnal! Which is dope. I, lo- I love when... when- Conserve any Christian throws throws the word carnal into the well. Mix. That's the that's his his word. Yeah, okay, he's saying that fair enough. Positive carnal Christian, right? Cool. Sounds yep. Cool. Yep. Our I rarely you rarely hear that used in a po- in a in a positive connotation. He, he is using it positively. You know, like you were just saying, an embedded carnal earthy Christianity, mm-hmm. which is great. I think our critique would be just. Uh, <laughs> Just walk out just the door, man. Just fucking do it. Just go. Yeah. Just do it. You're barking up the wrong tree. Like, yep. Um, go to go to a gallery. Um, <clears throat> as a true incarnation, seen meaning embodying in words, but not in matter. No, excuse me. Seen meaning embodying not in words, but in matter. Uh huh. Right. But honestly, that ties in extremely well with what we were just saying, and the theology of that is incredibly tight. You know, hmm. if you're doing, if you're taking seriously the idea of incarnation, incarnational theology, mm-hmm. whatever, and the word becoming flesh means it stops being the word and becomes flesh, which is matter, which is carnal. Okay. So this guy's right on point. Again, you know, it's, uh, you're not going to sell any books this way, though. <laughs> you know, well, maybe you would. What do you mean? Like, Just saying stuff like this? I, I just mean it's 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 wasted on yeah it's wa- a, yes. a lot of God, yes on the church. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean it, it it has an audience in in uh, people who are I guess deconstructing and moving away. But he allows the rad- he allows the radical consequence if we accept art the hegemony of word is broken, right? Uh-huh. And that's what we're trying to say with the Taos artists is like in the Desert Fathers is. The supremacy of something other than word, logos, logic, like that it is a more intuitive, um, an intuitive, like immediate uh, engagement with the world rather than something being mediated by thought, Mm -hmm. right? Instead, art is a language before language being pre-doctrinal, pre-doctrinal, like the Desert Fathers. Christianity and other religions draw from such symbolic meanings as they recognize as from a common pool. Art comes first, word second. And ecclesial authority embodied in doctrine collapses. Here's my favorite part. Here's my favorite part. 
But what of critical authority? <laughs> <laughs> Record scratch, like. Oh man, I love. I typically love uh, how bad most rhetorical questions are in general. But but what of critical authority? <laughs> you were tracking so well. You know, mm-hmm. it was a pretty level-headed. Okay, hang on. Yeah. What about critical authority? What about authority. <laughs> this is no small issue since the new penitent submissive posture. God, these amazing the tone shift, right. like the difference of words there. The new penitent submissive posture of the church towards art, exemplified by this book, though attractive, like other liberal forms of guilt. What the, I know. What such the a, hell is he talking such about? A turn uh, about face here. Like other forms of liberal guilt, no, it isn't. What the hell are you talking about? Gives it a somewhat airless, claustrophobic feel. If art is all, where is God? One longs to open the windows and allow God his say. But would, but would that give hegemony once again to word? Yes. Just, oh God. It's important not to lose hold of Pattison's achievement in this book of establishing the relative autonomy, relative autonomy of art, as untranslatable into words and his recognition of this challenge for theology. Nonetheless, the discussion seems vitiated by guilt-making postmodernist fears about hegemony and postmodern superstitions about language, for word never did have hegemony. Hegemony is a property of persons, not things of speakers, not of speech. Don't know what that means. It, and it has its uses. Pattison allows that people may try to express their thought about art and words, but unfortunately allows autonomy to grow into something like an autonomy, authority in art, as if it had a first order, unarguable, impassable being. Well, it may have, but by whose decision? Hence the feeling this book gives of being somewhat entrapped in art. Let me just, let me just get all the way through it. Uh, it's almost done. This is due perhaps to a weak theology of personhood in relation, relation to nature. While Pattison is surely right to include art as part of creation, his humanity and his humanity and nature seem to merge, as in Buddhism, which, yeah, humanity and nature seem to merge, as in Buddhism. No shit. Like, are you actually saying that humanity and nature are not merged? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that is what he's saying. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, it, like, astounds me to think that people like that they don't see that as evident that like humans are a part of nature. Right. No, um, that's, that's, that would be antithetical to some s- central theological concepts in as, as far as they're concerned. That's true. Which leaves artists and art lovers with no authority over their artworks. No. Aww. This means there's little to counterbalance the experience of art. No renewal of our personhood from external sources. He confesses that while art is increasingly treasured, in his practice of religion, he no longer regard, regards religion as capable of securing its own ontological foundations, which is true. There is, then, not surprisingly, an absence of the transcendent in this book. Art is to be wooed back apologetically to the church rather than reconciled to Christ, meaning like submitted to Christ. The church is sometimes destructive, true art only authentic. There's Indeed, something irreducible about art, something more than just an arguable message, but surely it is not as irreducible, as sinless as that. <clears throat> wait, 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 wait. Say, say that one more time, that last line. He's saying art is not irreducible, and it's not sinless. That's the problem with it. 
Uh-huh. Or it can't it, it can't, it can't be transcendent because ultimately it's... It has to come below the authority of God. Right. And the and the Bible, basically, like, it, it has to come below theology. Mm-hmm. It has to become below commandment or, yeah, wherever God's word is expressed because that's what has to judge art. If it doesn't have anything judging over it, then it's just too much. So the, I, I picked this because it's the perfect example of, like... We've talked a bit more, maybe just privately, about, like, there's such this, like, half-hearted attempt to be like, no, 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 like, we love art, like, God loves art, we, we need art in the church, we need to bring back art to the church, and this, this draws the line perfectly, very explicitly, of like, I hear what you're saying, but actually, but it you, is completely 100% wrong. 100%, it's, it's, it's off limits, like, right. you cannot do that. And that, that's what he's saying is, I mean, he's hearing, he's at least hearing this person correctly of saying, you know, that their, that art is superior to theology and to logos and word and authority. Right. Mm -hmm. And that it's, um, yeah, it speaks on its own footing. And he's also saying too, that like religion is also on its own footing, like, that basically it just stands on its own. It's not justified by anything else. Art is, doesn't need to be justified by anything else. And if you're a person of faith, like you're not going to find a, a a grounding for that. It just is. Like you take the leap for it. You right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yeah. So and, there there can't be two things that are unjustified by nothing. <laughs> there can only be one. Yeah. Right. There there can't be there can't be art and religion because one of them has to have supremacy over the... You can't have two things that are supernatural. Well, that's what the, that's what they're saying. I mean, I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. To some degree. Not, right. that, not that art is supernatural, but if it has a power that exists unto itself, that is not, that is not um, ma- beholden to material forces, that is then inherently equivalent or superior to God and that can't right. fly. No, exactly. And what the mistake is actually th- thinking you need the justification. Yes. Like what 100%. he's saying is okay, you really seem to think art is powerful. But did we is that okay? It, like did, did where you did you check? get your permission like, to yeah, do that? Exactly. Like did it, you did you did you get your did you get your permission slip signed? Right. It ultimate like the the problem with the whole thing is like the need for the justification and the grounding of like, but you have to like, you have to go behind the work and check and check and check and make sure all this is backed up by something completely absolute and for sure. Hundred percent. Like they're too like nuanced to just say like the Bible, you know? Right. Cause that sounds too dumb. Yeah. But that is what they're saying or, because that's the only way they could ever like validate that yes, God said art is okay, mm-hmm. you know. Right. You can you can come in. Right. Um yeah, where the, I ex- think, Exodus 29. Right. God likes God likes gold curtains. Gold. And <laughs> he loves, he's very fancy. Yeah. <laughs> he loves getting all dolled up on occasion. Kind of gauche. <laughs> Yahweh. Um no, but and I think I I don't know this George Patterson person, they sound, you know, on the money. Right. 
would probably say like art doesn't have a foundation. Like you, it doesn't have to be justified by anything else. And you could, you could have multiple transcendence because you like, you can have faith and art because neither one has to justify the other. You, and that's the key is like, you're never going to have a foundational justification for anything. Well, you're getting to the heart of, of, or the, maybe not the heart, but the crack in the foundation of theism itself here. Oh, right? Like, or not even theism, just, just like religious belief. That, that, that one of them, it, it has to have, at least in our construction or our, what we have inherited as our understanding of religion or of Christianity, it has to be absolute truth. There's no other way around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and if you invalidate that in some way, then you are then it's completely yeah. And the forbidden. only way, the only way to have absolute truth is to have it undersigned by an absolute authority. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, right. It, and and art, not, not yourself. Importantly, most importantly, right. That's the thing that that they'll always say is that it's it's yourself, right? You this isn't right because it's yourself. When when what it really is is that. Art can be derived and founded upon the the collective the the sum total of human experience. That's what it's attempting to do. That's the foundation. Yes. Right. Like that's where it comes from. Is is us? And it it's funny that he says like um that the it's lacking the transcendent. Like his whole thing is lacking the transcendent. Which, like, I think, you know, for evangelicals who have tried to develop a vocabulary for art, like, transcendental is, or transcendent is the only word they can, like, go to. And and what it's saying is, what is real, I think what Christians mean by that is transcending our lowly world. Like, you look at a beautiful mountain, but to transcend it, you look to God. You know, that's the tra- transcendent. You look through it. Exactly, exactly. Whereas... Thanks, C.S. Lewis. This guy, George Patterson, actually probably is much closer to the transcendent, which is what you were just saying of, of what art accomplishes in that it's moments where you can transcend your imprisoned consciousness. You yourself as a subject and an ego are normally trapped within the circle of your own mind and perception and art is one of those places where you can actually reach across and go oh my god there's other people out there mm-hmm. and we see something similar whereas normally you're you're completely stuck that's what i think transcendent is and you can you can even talk about like divine transcendence as related to that but it doesn't just mean the biggest like the biggest badass you know dick in the room like <laughs> which is what is normally meant I just did the the high school <laughs> slap your finger against your other finger thing. Yeah. Because I don't have anything to add. Um, no, that's it. I, I so I think we can build on this. This comes from a writer who um, is a president of a seminary, a prominent Protestant seminary. We'll say that a Westminster Theological Seminary in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. That's that's like mecca, right? As far as as American Protestant seminaries go. Yeah. I um, think for at least for like the more reformed flavor. Right. Yeah, yeah, reformed especially. Um 
Uh, let's see. I'm going to try to skip here to make make things to kind of uh, tighten it up a little bit. But a student emailed me this morning and asked me a question, which is, I think, probably worth sharing with the wider world. What were the most important Christian books ever written? <coughs> Kiss ass. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a, okay, so A, kiss ass. Two, nobody wrote you this. The president? You wrote the president of the seminary then? Oh, totally. And that's like, <laughs> like, dude, just... Just like ask him, just come out and say it. Like, I want a job. Yeah. You know, and, and you're not going to get it by asking a question like that. That's just a bad, <laughs> bad try. I faced it at least a dozen times in my many years, this question. Um, blah, blah, blah. After all, beyond the biblical canon, one selection of great Christian books is inevitably subjective and open for discussion. In addition, my favorite books are not necessarily those with which I agree. (laughs) They are rather those that have stimulated and challenged me the most, morally and intellectually, often by making me rethink. probably uh, Fifty Shades of Grey was stimulating you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) Um, Often by making me rethink cherished positions, even when I do not ultimately come to agree with the author. So... I think that's that'll be sounds like a person with a very flexible, very flexible, open mind. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So for what it is worth, here are the books, which if I were cast away on a desert island today. So tying it back in desert island books, I would take with me in addition to the Bible, of course, he says. And by the way, my luxuries would be a never ending jar of Marmite. Don't know what the hell that is. And for sheer entertainment, the complete novels of Raymond Chandler. Who's that? Raymond Chandler is a, uh, a crime novelist who wrote, you know, kind of classic mystery crime novels. Um, which, of course, you have to slip that in. Like, I'm not a total, I'm not a total snob or you know, st- like total prick about this. Which, like, if you like Raymond Chandler, like, put that on your list, right? Like, if why that, do well, why, why do you have to? That? Yeah, why do you exclude Raymond Chandler from your list? But of course, that's not that's not what we're ranking here, which is the greatest Christian books ever in chronological chronological order. Number one, starting with of course Augustine's Confessions. Yes. Augustine, sorry, I said that wrong. Saint Augustine. You know, say Augustine. I prefer Augustine. Yeah, Augustine is ugh, no. Okay, if you say Augustine, it it is a dead tip off that you're one of these types of guys. 155%. <laughs> okay. Simply the greatest piece of Christian autobiography ever written. A book which will, which is still remarkably fresh and modern today. I love Absolutely that. Absolutely not. <laughs> I love that. I, I, there's so many wasted years of my life of like pastors saying like, you know who you should read is the Puritans. You know, like you've got to read John Owen. This stuff is dense, but it is relevant. And going and finding this shit that it like you can't get in print anywhere, and then it just so, like it is. It is such bad reading. It's so boring. Confessions it's, is so fucking long. It's like, so incredibly boring. And yeah. and there there are five good sentences. In, you cannot in like. We are not conditioned to read that type of writing. Like it, it the cultural, like touch points are are so eroded. Right. Like it's like li- it'd be like listening to music from <laughs> the third century. Like you don't have the ear for it at all. I think Augustine, Augustine, he was like what eighth, ninth century, something like that. 
maybe like year a thousand, eleven hundred, something like that. He was Wait, a little. What? He was, when was it? When did Augustine oh, write for that? No, I think I he was like late. He was like pre medieval. Show me to Wikipedia. Sure, and he should have included this in that. Like, you need to give a little more context, dude. Um, but okay, so he says, you know, I read it every year with my students. Which, by the way, I had a colleague at uh, a former university where I taught who came to me one day and he said, I think I'm going to have my freshman, you know, I taught, we all taught freshman writing where we got to pick what text we had them read and we go through it with them and they write about it. And he was like, I think I'm going to have them read confessions. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good idea, man. Like, it's not very good. I had to read it in grad school. And, and he was like, well, we'll give it a shot. And then he went, well, no, he went and read it on his own and he came back and he was like, sure enough, he was like, that sucked. <laughs> he was like, I for, I had no idea how boring and and like dry that is. Uh, so it was like, okay, I stole an apple. <laughs> exactly. I'm really horny. <laughs> exactly. Okay. He says the genius of Augustine lay in his ability to take pagan genres of literature and deploy them for distinctly Christian purposes. You don't know that. You do not know <laughs> that is exact. You're what reading Wh- pagan which literature? Which the, ones? Yeah. Can you expl- Can you elaborate on that? Like. Please tell me what pagan pagan literature he is using there. Um, That's so. Funny. He lays out the journey of a rebellious child to philosophical seeker to Christian believer and casts the whole as a prayerful address to God. The and whole see, thing th- is a prayer. The oh. whole thing's a prayer. You know what my and that that's the problem. Want to know my favorite type of book is uh-huh. a prayer. <laughs> That's what everybody in Barnes and Noble is looking for. Excuse me, where's the prayer section? Yeah. You tell me where to find books that are prayers I'm all like the way a through. Five hundred page par- prayer, please. <laughs> no, and and okay, I'm I'm trying to get to a point here, but okay, so along the way, the descriptions of the agony of Augustine's mother as she longs for her son to turn to Christ are among the most moving ever penned. No, they are not. They're not. They're not. They're not supposed to be. They're not. That's not what that is. It's no. And the account of the stealing of pears in which Augustine engages as a youth, pears which he never really wanted anyway, just stole for the fun of it, brings out through its triviality (laughs) the pointless malice and mediocrity that is sin. Yeah. No, it doesn't just bring out like, Augustine, I think you have some mental health issues like let it go dude let it go bro like no absolutely like the pairs don't matter mm-hmm. the pairs do not matter as much as you think they do no so of course the pairs if you you've read confessions clearly so and th- this, i've read a, the same amount as this guy, this the is the first what, 10 pages right and this is what people will say and this is what it always comes down to is the pairs and of course the pairs as a metaphor right, right? the pairs as a metaphor for sin for sexual sin in particular. Yeah. So there's that f- that very famous line, you know, the line, when I'm, which is actually a good, this is one of his few good lines. I suspect it was translated in a way that made it a little bit more pithy, a little bit more of a, of a you know, poetic line. Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Mm. Which is him, right? That's a good line. Mm-hmm. But when you put it in its context, which is him, Reflecting back on what he was thinking at the time, mm-hmm. him looking back on himself, it's it's the first, yes, it's the first spiritual autobiography, and it is the first instance 
of a guy humble bragging <laughs> about how much ass he used to get <laughs> yeah. before he gave his life to Christ. Totally. You know, so it's it's it is like in many ways, yes, it is the first spiritual autobiography, autobiography in that it's the first time somebody wrote in a way that cast their entire life backwards, retroactively, mm-hmm. to reflect a, a theological awakening or, or yeah. a, a, a spiritual awakening. Right. I mean, that's the thing is, like, he, Augustine is really important and historically, like, does reflect a huge turning point. And within the context, like, there are maybe really impressive things happening or just, like, uh, yeah, just important things. But, like, you can't read that for fun. No. That's the... It is... That is so far in the past. <laughs> like, it's... That's a good thing for scholars to think and write about. It's fine for for you to read someone's synthesis of why it matters. But, like, average person trying to either be, like entertained or fulfilled or like doing as an like devotional reading like you 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 cannot connect with something like this all you, it's going so to do alien from right. the context i agree with that 100 percent. it's it's going to it's going to encourage a person reading that to project yeah. further a particular protestant puritanical interpretation or or view on the self yeah Really onto yeah. that, and then make it doubly intense on their own self. Right. If anything, right? like right. okay, so here's that passage with the pairs, that is so fucking important. Nothing made sense up to this point, mm-hmm. and here's this guy lacerating himself for stealing a pair when he was six, and wanting to get laid when he was seventeen. <laughs> right. And 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 that the like the clarity of that in in comparison to the rest of it, intensifies that entrenchment of a very narrow idea of the self, right? To me, to me, I think it really is like, and I don't have enough theological or in literary knowledge to say this definitively, but I really do think it is like the first instance of Christianity as a completely self-obsessed, solipsistic, yeah. egotistical religion. Right. It's the, it's like the first um, crystallization of like the Western self. Right. And, yeah, the, an epic of an individual soul. 100%. Yeah. Okay, next. Um, Thomas Aquinas. Oh, my God. Are you fucking <laughs> Summa Theologicae. Theologiae. Is he seriously saying it? And that's, what I'll, that's all I'll really say about Thomas Aquinas is, like, you did not read Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> you did, Okay, maybe you, you, you crammed it in one night. You, or you crammed a, par- a passage. They, that in book seminar. is like two thousand pages. It's two thousand pages. Of it's scholastic. in Latin. Yeah. It's it's, you know, translated from Latin into, it's a dictionary. It's literally a dictionary. However, fun fact, he wrote that in Orvieto. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. Um, okay. Yeah, that sucks. I mean, that is such bad advice. Do Any, not read like Summa Theologica. Tw- a twenty-year-old <laughs> Christian guy <laughs> trying and. Failing immediately to read the Summa is gonna just want to kill himself because thinking he's supposed to like enjoy this or succeed with this. 
This is such bad. This is hilarious. I, I won't even read the whole passage, but I'll say my interpretation. Everything he says about this book is not about the book. <laughs> it, it's it's just he 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 has never read it clearly. He he just says it's important to read, you know, because of what it says about the Catholic tradition. Uh, you know, blah blah blah. The Dominicans draw heavily upon this. There's no actual content to demonstrate that this guy's ever read this. As a dummy. He's a dummy, honestly, but, and yet he is a president of Westminster Seminary. Yeah. And it, honestly, uh, just to be real, it's it's similar to saying like someone's getting into like socialism or leftist ideas, and be like, you have to read Capital. You you really don't don't read Capital. Right. There's, you really don't need to mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. No. <laughs> like I agree. You're going to miss the point a thousand ways. It's important. And you can reflect on the importance. Better to read like an interpretation of yeah, it. Yeah, a, a synopsis. Like, you don't need to read a three hundred year old economics book or a one thousand. How many? Yeah, probably a thousand year old theological like super appendix. Like, um, that that sucks so bad. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, that and that's the one. He's like, no, nah, I don't agree with everything in here. <laughs> Pretty Catholic. <laughs> pretty <right>. Catholic. <laughs> really, yeah. really. Thomas Quine has really challenged my view. Yeah. By the on, way, dude, on yeah. the like the uh, orientation of the cosmos. Yeah. You know, you would be a heretic to to Thomas Aquinas. Just FYI, <laughs> like you're so far stray from yeah that as the actual standard of orthodoxy. Right. Okay. Next, Martin Luther, the freedom of the Christian. That, that's the name of the book, apparently. Mm-hmm. A beautiful book, which, no, it's not, <laughs> I'm sure, which perhaps, like no other before or since, places freedom, biblically, biblically conceived Christian freedom at the center. Luther, the beer-drinking, <laughs> life-affirming, foul-mouthed volcano is someone whose extreme views on Anti-Semite. virtually... Anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> Anti-Semitic... Yeah, uh, is someone whose extreme views on virtually everything are bound to leave everybody uncomfortable with him on some issue or another. Yet, in an age of such overbearing political and theological correctness, <laughs> and amidst a Christianity which can so often be self-absorbed in its own unbiblical asceticism... Okay, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't, I, that See, that's at this point, it's like, these are just... You get the cadence of, of of a piece of writing like this, and it's it's just you could throw anything there, yeah. right? You could say so uh, often be so self absorbed in its own, you know, uh, like obsession with yoga or something like mm-hmm. that, and the, and you would be like, mm-hmm. yep. People just you just scan through it, yeah. Or therapeutic self absorption, absorption. This little work from 1520, the greatest year for Luther's theology, in my opinion, <laughs> is a masterpiece. This guy is is fully on one, but like it's it's painting such a picture, like by his projection here of like trying to actually show that he or make people think that he knows this much about Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. It, it, he's like this guy's spending most weekends on a on a boat, like. Mm-hmm. You know, like with prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, looking for someone to like be impressed. Like, 
in my opinion, the best year for youth Luther was like, fifteen twenty. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It's funny to hear like to like how are you gonna complain about self absorption when you just listed Augustine and Luther? Right. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um of course it gets to the classical things about Luther and and you know and this maybe is a good illustration of paradox. Right. Or we if we could get back to theology for a second. So it's about the freeness, the freeness of the gospel of salvation. Right. Mm-hmm. So it is in the way in which it is utterly unmerited from beginning to end, our status before God's entirely a manner of Christ's work, not ours. So correct me if I'm wrong here, or you can disagree here, that the degree to which you argue that grace is unmerited. Is act is equal to, in practice, how unattainable it actually is. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Like in like, the more you are like, the person who emphasizes the most the unmerited nature of salvation. Yeah. Right. It's it's we don't deserve it. We don't. We don't this. We don't that. It's utterly free. There's a par- that there's a paradox in the way that the desert equals abundance and that it actually means you don't get shit. You don't get anything. You don't deserve it and you're not going to get well, it. Well, yeah, I would say it's not a paradox, it's just a contradiction. There's no reconciling it, you know. Yeah. Like there's no <laughs> it's like a it's the fundamental flaw in all of evangelical theology of right. like uh yeah, that Telling you how much of a worm you are is supposed to ultimately add up to being right. good news or something. Right. For sure. And, and, it, and it, yeah, 100%. So, okay, I'm going to skip this one. Blaise Pascal. You have not read Blaise Pascal. Once yeah. again, skipping. To John Bunyan, Pilgrim, yes. Pilgrim's Progress. Howdy, Pilgrim. A work which needs, <laughs> it's kind of perfect, actually. Um a work which needs no introduction. Yeah, John Wayne would be a perfect, like, perfect analog. Like, he would, he would be the protagonist in Pilgrim's Progress. Just <laughs> yeah. like adult. Yeah. Just the most simplistic narrative imaginable. <laughs> and yeah. it just, like, a square-jawed dummy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Pilgrim's Progress it was the most popular book in Europe, like, right. after the Bible. I have some thoughts on that, however. I will say at, at you know, a certain phase of my life, I thought it was cool, but um, like the, like, you know, theater kid, I love, I just liked the art because, because it was so popular. Um, there's a cool, like, woodcuts and etchings and stuff in all the different versions. So I always liked, like, finding old copies and and looking at the cool etchings, and then I'd try and read it and be like, this shit sucks. This right. Sucks. Okay, here's what I'll say to that, because I think that's that's on point. Um, and I am not a literary scholar, so anybody can come for me for this if this is incorrect, but my understanding, and this is based off of, you know, an English literature class that I took, we read Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is interesting in that it is a continuation of an actual literary tradition. Not a theological tradition. It is a theological mm. yeah, 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 yeah. attempt right. to 
render the literary tradition, which is the the morality play. Mm-hmm. The morality play had existed in medieval and old English for centuries, and Chaucer <laughs> and Spencer did it better, and, and right? It, and then Bunyan comes Paul along. Paul Bunyan killed it. This is <laughs> the last ever morality play. John Bunyan. Um, what did I say? Paul Bunyan. Yeah. <laughs> it, pretty much. He came in and said, okay. It, it, no, it's like it's like God's not... It's like a Christian yeah. movie. It's like they made Die Hard. They made, they made all these amazing movies that were, you know, kind of practicing a formula. And then someone comes in and says, but what if we made it about... <laughs> it's Die Hard, your only example of an amazing movie. <laughs> I mean a movie that is like... Okay, so if there's a genre... Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's a genre that has existed, that is being tweaked and perfected, and then someone comes in and makes a much more simplified version of that, mm-hmm. that has a theological, mm-hmm. you know, like very simplistic pedagogical narrative mm-hmm. not, not, not to say that the pre- preceding ones didn't have a, some sort of didactic purpose because that was true of a lot of literature at the time but pilgrim's progress is like it's that but just like okay we're just going to use this now as a theological mm-hmm. kind of yeah you know treatise yeah. and once again couldn't find a better example of like the western ego and yeah, dramatizing the self, mm-hmm. like completely enshrining the self. Right. So what are you complaining about, buddy? All right. Who, me? No, the guy. Oh, sure, yeah. In terms of self-centered uh, modern people. A- ain't that the truth? Um, okay, so that we're almost done here. I'm going to skip. Well, yeah, they we're pretty much done. Uh, and he, he talks, okay, so now he says Kierkegaard, but this is within like a million qualifications. Which, which I, I actually haven't read Kierkegaard extensively. Maybe you could speak to this. Kierkegaard is much maligned in evangelical circles, and certainly he does not fit into the typical evangelical framework. Yet few Christian writers have had the impact upon me, as has this tormented Dane. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Postgraduate, battered copy I found in a bookstore. What struck me most of all was his passionate engagement with the truth. Something must not be simply true. It must be true for you. Blah, blah, blah. Existentialism. Um, qualifying everything to the point that he actually dismisses everything that's been said. Yeah. Um, okay. But a rather clear iteration of the non-negotiable need for Christians to be completely and utterly committed with every fiber of their being to the truth. So ultimately, the, what he got out of Kierkegaard is, is you have to be really, really serious and tormented yeah. about your commitment to the truth. Yeah. Even, you know, to throw, to throw away all of the, like, the fact that he did undermine Christian theology in every way, mm-hmm. right? Wow. And, and posited, like, a postmodern existential interpretation of Scripture. You could speak to that more better than I could, probably. Probably not. I mean, um, I mean, most people aren't going to be able to read Kierkegaard either. You yeah. Know? Like, no, no. It's it's pretty. It's not easy to read. Yeah. You need like, you need a lot of philosophical background and like vocabulary. Um. So, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It, but, obviously. 
you can't <laughs> like you're not you're not really reading it if you're not willing to go like more than an inch with this person. Right. Like, yeah, so you're not reading it. He's he's essentially saying don't don't read any don't read it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um so you get the gist of this. I mean, okay, so here's his closing paragraph. I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit here. Um it's fun to make fun of this guy, but but also just to get a sense of like this 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 is a this is a dean and a vice president at Westminster Theological Seminary. Right. Although let let me say this real quick. Mm-hmm. Like Kierkegaard, well, I was thinking how funny the pairing of he is of the pairing putting of Kierkegaard in that list with the others, but actually it does make sense of like the Kierkegaard is actually like expressing the like full force and extension of like the self, you know, mm. carrying it like existentialism is where you would go after Augustine and Bunyan, you know, mm-hmm. like sure. if you're actually going to take the will, the mind, like the, su- the subjective seriously, right. Then <laughs> like that's his whole problem is actually I'd, I, I want to stop at, I want to stop at Kierkegaard and then go back in time and then press pause right on Luther. Right. And that's it. Right. Or Calvin. Calvin. Yeah. And that's what he says in his kind of closing paragraph. There are a lot of people who I could have included here, blah, 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 uh, such as Calvin's Institutes, John Owen's Pneumatologia. You cannot read that. (laughs) You cannot read that. And the writings of J.I. Packer. These would have been companions. But reading widely and especially reading material which does not simply echo my own thoughts back to me is important for maintaining a humble and thoughtful stand as a Christian. (laughs) This is one of the things which, in my experience of higher education, separates the Christian from the liberal. The ability to read material from outside one's chosen camp in a manner which shows that one is willing to listen and to learn while at the same time to capitulate... Not to not capitulate to every new wind of doctrine or putative or putative scholarly consensus. Consen- what the, to re- what the hell are you talking about? You could not have picked a more concert conventional orthodox yeah. list of. There's, there's so, oh God, it's so incoherent that as to like, there's nothing you can disagree with. Like, right. how are you disagreeing with Calvin? <laughs> like, you're not. You can't read Aquinas and say, you know, I, I, I disagree with Aquinas there. Yeah. It is. Uh, this, this, <sighs> yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, I read some of the bad boys. <laughs> Luther was Aquinas. a foul mouth beer drinking bad boy. That's so funny. Which, which is one of my favorite things that I saw this again when I was scouring the interf- internet for bad Christian content. Um, they, they love to bring up the fact that Christian or, or that uh, Luther drank beer. He's like, they all drank. <laughs> Every German alive was drinking beer. Yeah. They drank more beer than water because yeah. you fermented it so it didn't so poison you because there wasn't shit in it. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't a home brewer. Dude, what's your favorite type of beer? <laughs> Go. I love a dark a dark stout or a, um, what's the other dark one? I'm a hops guy. <laughs> I am. Love a dark stout because it means I'm tough. Yeah. Even though it tastes like milk beer. Um, 
Yeah, you could not you could not have a more uh canonically Christian bookless. Like that's so funny. <laughs> Get a dig in on liberals. Liberals yeah. don't like to read people outside of their bubble. <laughs> Whereas I like John Bunyan. Uh, John a book for a, a book for for like and children. <laughs> <laughs> a picture book for for Puritan children. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for for kids is like skipping around with with batons and ribbit rib, ribbons in, yeah. in Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah. Who's who's Parents then went on to, you know, kill women for being witches. Yeah. Oh, man, that's oh, funny. Man, and you shouldn't Puritans. read. I mean, the truth is actually. Thanks like, a lot, Puritans. I think conservatives, to, to an extent, or like it's a certain mindset, like do like to read people that they hate a little bit to get fuming mad and to feel intellectually tough uh-huh. for doing it. I right. mean, I used to do that to an extent. Like what? What did you read? Like. It's just so embarrassing. <laughs> but like, I okay, I you know, I used, there was a, a time in my life, maybe one or two years total, two or three, mm-hmm. when I was becoming a conservative evangelical. So in my mind, like, I'm going to read Brian McLaren uh-huh. to see what, you know, the heretics are up to. <laughs> right. I'm very sorry to say that. But he's um, still a fucking Christian. Yeah. <laughs> Like, <laughs> you read Rob Bell, and it's just like, oh man, like it's just a lot of pausing and yeah, paragraph and dense. line break, line break, line, line break, break, line break, line break. Yeah. Oh man, he's talking about uh, it's just like death cab for cutie again or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, but yeah, like there's a certain there is this I think conservatives will do that where they're like I'm gonna read a book about Marx mm-hmm. or I'm gonna read a book about yeah something like that just to yeah because I'm because I'm tough-minded mm-hmm. you know and I want to make myself a, a very highly trained uh, apologetics athlete <laughs> right which which is pretty but much only only exercised in their own mind with nobody else. Absolutely. And, and watching YouTube videos. Absolutely. And, and fuming. I'm sh- as you would know better than anyone, like you can't read that way. You can't read in order to get dirt on the enemy. Like you can't read in order to refute someone. Like Nietzsche's my favorite person to just think about. Like if you want to read. Nietzsche, you actually are going to have to read and like mm-hmm. actually try and understand what he's saying rather than refuting and debating all along the way. And then, you know, he says something offensive and you're like, I knew it. I knew I was right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, it's um pretty hilarious. Just read Raymond Chandler, dude. Like you like it. You know you, yeah, exactly. or, or you either don't like it, or you're pretend, or or you do. And if you do, no, I think he does like it. Do it. I think it. Go yeah, read it. Some like, yeah, like some boomer like pulp. Yeah, it's bo- it's boomer pulp. Fighting Nazis probably are like yeah. He's probably read if he's reading at all. Yeah, true. in my my guess is that this person is not has not read a book, picked up and read a book in twenty years since he got his his tenure. Could be. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Um, 
or just reading and not pretend and pretending to like it. Mm-hmm. I think that's more common. Yeah, I, I um, pretending like you're having a good time. Exactly, and I, I God, I had something I wanted to say, but I can't remember what it was. Um, that, yeah, I mean, no, that's that's like these the way that. Um, Oh my god! I just completely lost my train of thought. I think I'm approaching our our terminus here. Um, Drunk? No, no. Um, That the way that he writes here is and and is just talking about theology is so I you know counter to what the desert fathers represented, Mm -hmm. right? And what mystical sources or Christians or religious thinkers, um, which is this, you know, acknowledgement that ultimately words in ideological frameworks are paralyzing and, um, you know, they're traps, right? Right. They're they're prisons. And this, this is like a complete illustration of a, like being completely trapped by an intellectual (laughs) prison, an ideological and theological spiritual prison. In every way. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why it's so, like, hard to entertain the idea that, like, language, and especially written language, might not be the ultimate technology. Right. Or that, like, uh, if you have faith, like, in a transcendent God, like, that, that, why, why would language be good enough well, I, I don't it, understand. It comes that. back to you need a, an an authoritative source, and ultimately, what are, whoever decided would be the ult, authoritative source was those those bunch of dudes who sat down and said we have to enshrine the New Testament as the inerrant word of God, mm-hmm. right? And and from that point forward, you have to you have to at every turn appeal to that authority. It, it's it's shaped every facet of, of the way that we think. Mm-hmm. You know? Like how do how do you how do you escape that if ultimately you're you can't you can't transcend the idea that like there is an authoritative text. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's pretty scary. Pretty scary stuff. Yeah. Is, is it really a transcendent God if it's if it's if if John Bunyan is is one of your top five writers about <laughs> about that, no, John Bunyan is fine. Um, if Calvin, I've always hated Calvin. That's what that's a that's an edge that I have on you <laughs> from the beginning. Always yeah. hated Calvin. Sure, yeah. like this guy's a prick. Yeah, I can tell for sure. <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah, well, pencil neck, pencil neck dweeb. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, I think, uh, we went pretty deep into the desert here. We've, you know, got our shins in the cut, sand, cut by the sagebrush. Oh yeah. Our lips chapped by <laughs> the dust. Um, what do you have? Anything to to add here, Ben? Any closing thoughts? Uh, 
I don't think so. Yeah, I'm kind of losing my uh, losing my steam here. I, I'm feeling like I'm approaching Desert Father's territory, which is a nonverbal state, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of existing in uh, in 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 truth, you know. So you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna let us I'm gonna dwell there for a while. But 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 before I do that, um, I'll plug one more time our our uh, you know special collaborator or you know musician who's who's offered offered some of his music for this podcast, which is Trevor Welch, W-E-L-C-H. Look him up at Trevor.money. And uh, Trevor Welch on Twitter. Thanks, Trevor. We're gonna He's going to play us out here. So this has been Magic Camp, a little sojourn into the desert. Um, I'm Paul. I'm Ben. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Later. Bye.